My name is Naomi Hawkinson, and my husband Sam has attended Faith for over 20 years, and I've been about 10. We've served as Stephen Ministers and with Grief Share, and uh, currently I serve on the vision team for Care and Recovery Ministries at Faith. Today I'm going to be reading from Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 35. Acts chapter 15. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you put to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul, telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a, name, a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to, send, to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard from some, from some, that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds with what they said. For we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friend Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the, whole, the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. 
So the men were sent off and sent down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. This is the word of God. morning everyone. Well uh, as we get into Acts chapter 15 we've been moving through Acts over over the summer going through uh, verse by verse chapter by chapter and as we Acts 15 begins it actually drops us right into the midst of one of the most important events in all of church history. It says that a group of people traveled from Judea so either the city of Jerusalem or somewhere near in that area traveled from Judea all the way to the city of Antioch in order to deliver a message to the rapidly growing church in that city and that church was mostly comprised of Gentile believers. It had been established by the Apostle Paul and his partner in ministry Barnabas. Now, over the past few chapters, we've seen how these same two people, Paul and Barnabas, had actually gone on a missionary journey and traveled around the region telling people about Jesus, sharing the gospel with them. And in fact, as they went, they continued to preach to Gentiles. And as they preached to Gentiles, they saw more and more Gentile believers, non-Jewish believers, come to full and saving faith in Jesus Christ. These new believers were found from both groups, and so it, it continued to show with increasing evidence that God really did indeed mean and, and intend to include everyone in this, uh, in, in this movement of bringing in new people into, into his beloved community. The gospel was proving to be hope and life for all who believed, Jew and Gentile alike. However, in this passage, it's that very power and that very sufficiency of the gospel that's called into question by these visitors from Judea. Their claim, and it's the one that sent Paul and Barnabas into, into sharp debate and, and actually ended up sending them to, to Jerusalem to, to settle this issue, the claim of these visitors was introduced in verse 1, where it said, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you were circumcised, according to the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. So these people from Judea, they were not arguing that uh, whether or not Gentiles could be saved, right? The, the, the question here is, can, is not, can Gentiles be saved? That debate had been settled back in Acts chapter 10 and 11 when God led Peter to the house of a man named Cornelius who was, who was a Gentile believer in God. And as Peter presented the gospel, the Holy Spirit came and filled Cornelius, blessed his whole family, and they all became believers. Ever since that time, Gent it was well known that Gentiles indeed were blessed with true and saving faith in Christ. The question here, however, that remained for some, from, for some Jewish believers was this. It's not whether or not Gentiles can be saved, but how are Gentiles saved? In what way do they interact with, with the way God has done things before? Many Jewish Christians still valued and revered and obeyed the laws of Moses. They, they still believed that this was an integral part of what it meant to be the people of God. They'd grown up with, th with this law of Moses and this way of doing things. They'd grown up with this their entire lives. Generation after generation of their families had passed down the rules and rituals and traditions of what it meant to be the people of God. And for these Jewish believers, a devout life, a, a, devout, a devout life before God, it just was not possible without certain religious practices, without certain faithful practices, one of those being circumcision. 
And so to have this idea that there's an entire group of people coming into the church, coming into the people of God that weren't practicing these things, were not obeying the laws of Moses, were not submitting themselves to circumcision, there was no category in their minds or their hearts or their theology for faithful, devoted, a faithful, devoted life that looked like that. So in order to correct what they believe, what they saw as a deficiency in the lives and the faith of their new uh, believing brothers and sisters from the Gentile communities, they arrive in Antioch and they basically say, there's more you need to do if you really want to be saved, right? There's more you need to do. You're not done. There's more you need to do if you really want to be saved. And it's that last little piece, if you really want to be saved, that probably set Paul and Barnabas off, that, that, that sparked their fierce, fierce debate and ended up prompting them to be sent to Jerusalem to settle this issue. Because what these visitors from Judea were really saying is that Jesus is not enough. Jesus is not enough. Something other than Jesus, more than Jesus, in addition to the work and the love and the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus, something more is needed if, if you really want to be among those who are called saved. When talk like this is allowed to take root, it quickly erodes the foundation of the church and it erodes the, the foundation of our Christian faith as well. Which is why Paul and Barnabas take this immediate reaction. You see in verses two through four, the church quickly scrambles them together, says, we gotta send you to, to Jerusalem. You need to meet with the elders, with the leaders, with the church there and get them to settle this issue, to answer this question. And so they arrive in, in Jerusalem, and along the way, they're telling other people about what's going on, and there's great encouragement, there's great gladness, but when they arrive in Jerusalem, and they're gathered, gathered with the believers there, the question is brought forth once again, this time by, by, by believers who are Pharisees, so people with even more theological education, people with even more clout and, and power and influence. And there in verse 5, we get, the, we get the question presented again, then some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Right? So their, their conflict here is that the believers must be circumcised, they must be required to keep the, the, the law of Moses. So this conflict that's before the church and within the church, this is an internal debate and conflict, is this. It really comes down to this. What is necessary for salvation? That's the question that everyone had on their minds here. What is necessary for salvation? Are the rules different? Is God's expectations different for Jews and Gentiles? What must be done and what must we do in order to be saved? Before we get into to exploring this text to, to try and seek an answer and see how the church handled it, I want you to consider whether or not you've ever heard someone say that it's only possible to, to, to achieve salvation if you believe in Jesus and do something else. Right? Have you ever heard anybody argue that, that salvation is dependent on believing in Jesus and doing this extra thing, and doing this additional work, and going this one more step? These days, we probably don't often hear people telling us that what's required of us is that we have to be circumcised, and we have to obey the laws that we find in the Old Testament. Th those arguments really aren't quite so, so popular anymore. But perhaps other similar statements do sound familiar. Unless you clean up your life and act right, look perfect, go to church every Sunday, you can't really think that you're saved. Unless you vote for this political candidate or support this particular political party, you can't really call yourself a Christian. Unless you care about this social issue the same way I do, certainly you can't really think you're a believer in Jesus. Unless you add this or that to what Christ did for you, your faith doesn't really count. 
it doesn't really save you because the truth is you need to do better if you really want to be part of this little club that we call the church. You've probably heard things like this said. You've probably had them said to you at some point. And when we're honest, we probably can look back and see where we have said these things to others as well. I know that I have experienced all three in my life. What I hope that we can see by the end of our time together this morning is that there is something that is often deeply wrong with these sort of statements because of the way it mixes up people's understanding of what is truly necessary for salvation. Because ultimately, when we, when we attach ourselves to these things that say you have to do this in addition to believing in Jesus, what we're doing is obscuring the gospel and obscuring the power of what Christ has done for people in their lives. We make people believe that their salvation depends on them and what they can do and whether or not they can measure up to a standard and that standard often ends up being something other than the gospel and other than the work of Christ. And all this does is leads people further away from what they really need. Not a life based on their own works, but on the grace of God and on his grace alone. So what is truly necessary for salvation? Let's look and see how the church handled this critical question. In response to the conflict, the believers in Jerusalem gather and hold what has become, come to known as the Jerusalem Council. It's this first ever meeting of a congregation of Christ followers coming together to settle a theological issue that has massive practical implications, massive implications for what the church is and what the church will be moving forward. For a while, everyone gets to chip in their two cents. They kind of have a, an open debate and people are talking back and forth and sharing this and that. And so finally, Peter stands up. And he gives his thoughts on the matter. And Peter has a lot of weight here because he's been among the Gentiles and he's actually had experiences bringing the gospel to them. And so first what he makes clear is that everything in relation to salvation, everything in, especially everything in relation to the salvation of the Gentiles as we've seen it develop, is all completely dependent on the work and the sovereign will of God. In verse 7 it says, After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. It, he did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. So in verse 7, it says that it's God's choice that the Gentiles get to hear and believe this gospel. In verse 8, he says that it is God who really knows the hearts of all people, and it was God that proved his acceptance of the Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he had for the Jewish believers. In verse 9, he says it was God himself who did not discriminate between Jews and Gentiles, but instead decided to purify their hearts by faith, just as he had with those who were Jewish believers. God made it possible for the Gentiles to hear and believe and repent and be saved. God is at work in all of these things long before we ever get there. Peter is doing something subtle and incredible with this argument because the question that had been brought forth to be debated was this, what, what is necessary for salvation? What do we have to do? That's what people wanted to know. What else do the Gentiles have to do to really be part of this community? But Peter's answer reveals that there's a problem even, even with starting out here in this question because by, by nature, it automatically starts looking for what we have to do to secure our own salvation. What is necessary from us to secure our own forgiveness? But the gospel of Jesus Christ is not about what we must do in order to be saved. The good news of salvation by grace through faith in Christ is all about what God has already done. 
It's all about God's own desire to see his name and his fame and his love for all people spread throughout the world and go through every life through the proclamation of the good news. So the first thing that is necessary for salvation, says Peter, is for us to realize with awestruck wonder what God has already done and is doing on our behalf. Not just for some, not just for a select few, but for all who hear and believe. Peter's next point is that what the Jewish believers were demanding of these Gentiles, what he said, you know, you must be circumcised and you must follow the law of Moses. These demands were something that they themselves, both individually and collectively as a people, they had never been able to do. At verse 10, he says, Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? This accusation that they were testing God, that this pro-circumcision, pro pro-law group was testing God is, is no small thing. Because to test God means to insist on something that is against God's will and stretches his patience to the point of breaking over into judgment. Right? So to test God is, is to really push against his will, to continue to push until the breaking point of saying, this must be done when God himself is saying, no, no, it, no it must not. Circumcision had indeed been once been required of God's people. And the Mosaic law had indeed once been something God wanted his people to follow. But these burdens proved to be too much. And human beings proved to be far too incapable of obedience to be saved in this way, with, with this means, in this manner. And Peter says, we can't demand of others what God himself does not require. Right? We can't demand of others what God himself says he does not require. The gospel is something different than all that. It is something greater and sweeter and more amazing. The gospel is what Peter summarizes in verse 11 when he says, No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. We believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that they are saved just as we are. This is the answer. This is the brilliance of this theological council and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe that all who are saved are saved by grace and grace alone. Right? This is the hallmark of the Christian life. We believe we are saved by grace and grace alone. So what is necessary for salvation? Recognize God's grace. Receive God's grace. Have your life completely changed by God's grace. Our salvation is not up to what we do. We don't earn our way toward our salvation. It's about what God has done for us and how we respond to all the work that he has done on our behalf. We believe that all who are saved are saved by grace and grace alone. Now, the simple definition of grace, the, the, kind of the easiest way to grasp it, is just that it is undeserved favor. All right, grace is kindness and love and compassion and forgiveness and blessings that you did not and cannot earn. All right, grace is never owed to you. It's never something that you, that you earned up, that you banked in. Grace is given to you as undeserved favor. So a fundamental, non-negotiable, essential of the Christian faith is that not a single one of us deserves what God is giving us. Not a single one of us deserves or, or, or is owed the relationship that God extends. We are given a gift of being close to our creator. We are blessed by love and the sacrifice and the miraculous power of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We cannot, we must not make the mistake of preaching the message, you are saved by Jesus and by some measure of your own effort. That's not the gospel. 
You are saved by grace through faith in Christ, and your life changes in profound ways as a result of that saving grace. The grace comes first, always. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ invites us to abandon our burdens and instead take up our worship. The God, the, the God we follow is not demanding a perfect, flawless obedience. He is extending a perfect, flawless love. So stop trying to earn your keep. Stop demanding that others try to earn their way toward God. And instead, enjoy all that Christ has earned and worked for for you on your behalf. After Peter's speech, the council listens to a report from Paul and Barnabas where they basically confirm with their own experiences that which Peter has argued for, saying that we see the Gentiles coming to faith. We see the gospel having an effect in their lives, the Holy Spirit filling them just as it did with us. Faith in Christ is saving all those who hear and believe. And then after this, the Apostle James spoke and gives voice to the final decision to the matter at hand. He agrees with the testimony of Peter, Paul, and Barnabas. Then he goes back to the Old Testament and he looks at a prophet named Amos and he says, Amos actually prophesied about this. He declared the truth that God would one day build his people from all nations, including the Gentiles, and that the, the line of David, the promised eternal line of David, would be rebuilt in this way. And with all this in mind, James finally declares, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. We should not make it difficult. I love this decision. Let's not make it harder than it needs to be to let people follow God. Let's not make it harder than it needs to be for those who are turning to God. Don't add burdens that they cannot endure. Don't get the gospel wrong by making it all about work. Let's share the grace of Christ with those who are coming to seek it and celebrate every single person who chooses to believe. Embrace this grace, James says. We don't want to add things in the way. We're not going to put something in the way that God himself doesn't put in the way. And then, of course, he turns right around and tells the Gentiles a bunch of things they're not supposed to do, which feels like a little bit of a bait and switch. He says, here's all this grace, and here's this list of things we really want you to stop doing. It's kind of a, it's a little bit of a weird shift, but I think there's something very intentional going on here that James is pastorally trying to lead these people to understand. So in verse 20, he says, Instead, we should write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues of every Sabbath. So why did James highlight these four things? This, this food sacrifice to idols, sexual immorality, consuming the meat of animals that have been strangled, and any consumption of blood. What, what's with these four things? This is my best guess. And, and by my best guess, I mean I looked at it, and everything I read said, here's our best guess. So this is the best thing that I can suggest coming forward with. All four of these practices were, were part, were, were kind of hallmark parts of various uh, temple uh, temple feasts and celebrations, pagan temple feasts and celebrations, worship of, of, of the Greek gods at that time. And so Gentiles who decided to follow Jesus may have also still felt like they could participate in these feasts and festivals and retain their faith in Jesus. And James is warning them that he basically thinks that's unlikely. Now the reason they might want to continue to participate is that being part of the temple festivities, being part of, of, of those things and celebrations going on was, was their deeply ingrained part of their cultural life, to, to 
be in Greek life and Roman life was to be a part of these things. And so furthermore, even though a Gentile, even if a Gentile believer could somehow manage to go to the temple to participate in these feasts, to head over to that district and, and enjoy some, some barbecue that had been sacrificed over to, 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 to the gods and idols and avoid all of this immoral behavior, it then would have been impossible for Jews to, to perceive themselves as any ability to continue to hold fellowship with those who had participated in those events. Everything about Greek temple worship was abominable to, Jewish, to the Jewish conscience and to the Christian way of life that was growing at that time. So what James is basically saying at this point, what he's going to put in this letter, what they're going to send off to these Gentile churches is this. He says, listen, we're not going to hold you to our old customs and traditions. I don't, we don't think that God will require anything like that from you, and so we're not going to require that from you either. We believe that God's grace for us is the same grace that's extended to you. However, we hope that you'll meet us halfway and keep away from such things that we believe to be spiritually dangerous and objectively evil. Please don't go to those temple celebrations. It will only cause you trouble and wound your fellowship with your Jewish brothers and sisters. So, indeed, we are saved by grace, but that grace should also begin to reshape our lives and change the things we do and influence what we choose to get involved with. And James's advice to these Gentile believers is this, walk away from the evil things that were part of your previous life. Walk away from those things that, that are evil and that are wrong and that lead you astray. Walk away from those things and choose fellowship with your new brothers and sisters that are part of Christ's church. It was good advice back then. It's good advice today. Walk away from the evil things of your previous life and choose the richness of the fellowship that is, that is in the church today. The rest of the passage goes on to describe how a letter was crafted by the council and sent to all the churches throughout the Roman Empire, sharing the decision, and we're told that, that it was received with great gladness and encouraged many, and the chapter ends with Paul and Barnabas returning to Antioch and continuing their, their ministry there. But as we come to the conclusion of the passage and reflect on it as a whole, I think there are two important takeaways for us to try to apply to our own lives. And the first is this. Since we believe that we are saved by grace and grace alone— the first thing we need to do is, is simply accept this gift. Accept this gift of grace. We need to embrace the grace by which we are saved. We need to treasure all that Christ has done for us, and we need to live lives that respond to, that are influenced by, that are clearly shaped and transformed by this grace that has been given to us. Now, this can admittedly be a hard thing to do because sometimes the idea of, of receiving grace, it seems a little bit intangible. It's not like grace is something you can hold on to or look at or, you know, move around and try to understand better. It, it, it's an idea, and, it, and it, it's something that happens within you. And so I would suggest, though, that, that you try this. Spend some time reflecting. If you're a believer in Jesus already, spend some time reflecting on how your life is different because of your faith in Jesus Christ. How has your life changed? How has it been transformed? How has it, it shifted away from your former life and become something better because of this relationship you have with Jesus? What kind of person have you become by walking further along in your faith? Do you find that you have peace in your heart, even in the midst of chaos and crisis and uncertainty? Are you able to share wisdom and truth with others in loving ways? Do you often feel compelled to act kindly and justly and compassionately towards others, even when, and especially when, it's going to cost you something and demand a sacrifice from you? 
Can you recall the lightness and gladness in your heart when you know you've been forgiven for something wrong? When you know you've been forgiven for something you've confessed, some sin that you've committed and yet gone to God and surrendered that? Let these questions and others like them stir up an awareness of what God is doing in your life. Stir up gratitude in your heart for all that God has done for you. And then from that place of gratitude, ask yourself this. How can I embrace this grace of Jesus Christ this week? Coming from this place of gratitude, understanding, reflecting on all that God has done for you, all your life and faith has done for you, how do you then embrace this grace? How can you pray and praise and thank God for all he has done? How can you make changes? What changes do you need to make in your life that honor God's grace and show how it's influencing you and transforming you and changing you away from what you were and who you were and who God wants you to become? How can you share this saving grace with others? And, and in fact, really this week, really, really ponder, try, try to decide who in your life might you be able to share this story of grace with? Who in your life needs to hear you say, I believe in Jesus and he has changed my life and I believe he can change yours as well. Who in your life needs to hear about this saving grace? If you're with us this morning and you're not a believer, I would ask you, I would simply ask you to consider this. Does all of this grace, does, does following a God who is all about grace, does that sound good to you? Right? Does this whole thing sound good to you? Does, does it sound like something you want to know more about? Does it sound like something maybe you even want to be part of? If so, then I hope that you're encouraged and even excited to hear that the only thing that stands between you and experiencing this life, experiencing this grace, is simply going to God and confessing your need for him and your belief that Jesus Christ was real, that he died for you, that he rose for you, and that now he wants to help you have that loving relationship with the Lord, confessing him as Savior and King. No work is required in this confession. It is all grace. You don't have to clean your life up. You don't have to get better before you come. If you're ready this morning, you can go before the Lord and say, I know I need you, and I know I want that grace that you have. Please, Please accept me. And the answer will be yes. Accept God's grace through faith in Christ. It is for you just as much as it's for anyone else in this room. No matter your concerns, no matter your past, Jesus Christ and his grace are for you. Please understand and accept today, even if for the first time. The second thing I think we need to do in light of this passage is to let go of those things in our life that lack grace. Right? Let go of those things. Let go of the attitudes. Let go of the practices in our life that lack grace. As a follower of Jesus Christ, there is no need for you to be cruel to yourself. Right? As a follower of Jesus Christ, there is no need to be cruel or graceless to yourself. Just as, as a follower of Jesus Christ, there is no need for you to be cruel or graceless to someone else. If Jesus Christ himself looks at you, and looks at your neighbors, and looks at the world, and says, yes, these are people I want to love. These are people I want to reach. These are people I want to understand that I am for them, and want them to come to me. Why on earth would we ever want to react in a different way that pushes people away, or pushes ourselves outside the bounds of God's grace, and say, I'll be over here, I'll work on these things, and then I'll come back over to God. Once I'm more perfect, once I'm more cleaned up, then I'll come back over to God. That's not what he's asking you to do. That's not the attitude you want to have. That is the gracelessness you want to let go of in your life. Let go and be rid of all things that are characterized by selfishness, greed, or immorality. 
Let go of your judgment of others and let go of the expectations and the rules and the regulations and the burdens that you add on yourself and tell others they must add on their life as well. Faith in Christ is meant to be a blessing. Faith in Christ is meant to generate joy and, and, and goodness and, and a sense of, of worth and a sense of connection to the Lord of all creation. And if you find it to be otherwise, if you find that, that, that your faith in Christ is not generating these things, then I'd suggest you need, to, you need to check on whether or not you're actually pursuing self-righteousness. If somewhere wrapped up in your faith, you've, you've actually tucked away this idea of, I've got to work really hard in order to present myself before the Lord. That sort of a, that sort of a faith is going to drain you. It's not going to bring joy. It's not going to bring the sort of life that, that is promised here in this passage because it lacks grace. So, so if, if, if your experience with Christ is not one of, of, of blessing, if it's not one of understanding that I am loved by, by my Lord, then something is, is not right. And you need to do an inventory and start investigating what has gone wrong and how you need to lean into grace instead of your own self-righteousness. In what ways might you let go of and repent of a lack of grace for yourself and for others? What can you identify that you need to let go of so that the grace of God can fill your life? We believe that all who are saved are saved by grace and grace alone. Thank God and praise him for this incredible, wondrous truth. This morning, we will celebrate communion together. And as we eat the bread and drink from the cup, we remember the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We remember his love for us, and we marvel at his grace for us. I'd like to invite, uh, invite you all to, to with me here in just a moment to read out loud uh, a passage from Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul clearly declares the same idea that Peter argued for here in 15 verse 11 and what the Jer Jerusalem Council decided would be a foundational doctrine of the Christian church in that we believe all who are saved are saved by grace and grace alone. And so in just a moment here, the passage will appear behind me. I would love for you all to, to read with me uh, th this passage from Ephesians chapter 2 and let these words sink into your heart, sink into your soul, sink into your mind and shape your understanding of what it really means to have a life that's characterized by the grace of God. So if you would all join me in the reading of Ch Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 through 9. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Please take a few minutes to reflect on the words from Ephesians 2, from reflect on the decisions and the words from Acts chapter 15, and prayerfully spend these next few moments in thankfulness for God's grace and a confession of those things in your life that you know lack grace that you need to let go of. These next few moments are yours between you and the Lord.
at our church, anyone who has confessed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior is welcome to join us for the celebration of communion. In just a moment, we will all together take our bread, and after some words from Scripture, we will, we will eat it together. And then after that, we will take the cup, and after more words from, from the Word, we will drink together. If you've joined us in person this morning, the uh, communion is in, the, in these cups that were outside this, the worship center. If you happen to miss one coming in, please feel free to, to get up anytime between now and, and when we start and, and grab what you need. Uh, all you do is tear the, t- tear the little paper away from the bread side and, and eat that, and then you can flip the cup over, tear it away again, and the, and the, the juice is inside the cup there. If you've joined us online this morning, we would love for you to participate in communion as well. We simply ask that you gather those things that you may have prepared beforehand and use those as your elements for communion. If you're with us today and you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, I just want you to know that we're so glad and honored that you've decided to join us and that you would trust uh, Faith Manhattan Church to be a place that you continue to investigate um, truth and, and continue to try to understand who God is and what he is like. All we'd ask you to do during this time is simply reflect on the words that you've heard, and maybe if you want to try praying, you can speak to God during this time. There's no, there's no official way to talk to him. There's nothing you have to do. You can simply speak, speak your heart and your mind to the Lord, and he will listen and he will hear. And as I said before, if this is the day that you want to make that confession, that you want to say Christ is your Savior and your King, please do so during this time. And if you do so, I'd love to, to, to meet you afterward and celebrate with you um, your, your new life and your new faith. Uh, in the same way, if you have any questions about anything you've heard today, please come find me or, or speak to one of the pastors or leaders at Take 5 after, after the service. But would you all please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we are filled with awe and wonder and gratitude for the grace that you have given to us. We know that we don't deserve to know you as well as we do or draw close to you in the way that we can or even experience your love in response to our sin. And yet this is all you give to us and so much more through your son, Jesus Christ. So thank you for the gift of Jesus and thank you for your incredible grace. In Christ's name we pray, amen. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he told his disciples that this is my body, which is broken for you. Take, eat, in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took up a cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Take this, do this, and drink this as often as you gather in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink from this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. May God the Father and Christ the Son and the Holy Spirit all attend to the prayers and concerns, the confessions and celebrations that were offered in prayer from the hearts of those gathered here today. Let us go from this place with gladness in our hearts, encouraged by your word and your truth, and most of all, by your grace, O God. There is no end to the thanks we give for all you have done for us, and we praise you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we praise you. Amen. Let's stand and respond together today.